welcome to the FinTech Podcast. My name is Will. I'm the editor and chief of the FinTech Magazine. And I'm very pleased to have a special guest with us here today. It is Charlie Burgoyne. He is the CEO of IA consulting firm Valkyrie. Charlie, it's good to have you. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you today. So perhaps you could uh, start us off by telling our listeners a little bit about Valkyrie and the work that your team does. Sure, happy to. Uh, we're an applied science firm. And what that means is that we solve really interesting industrial problems through a variety of different techniques and machine learning and uh, algorithm design, database structures, and what we call ontologies or knowledge structures. Um, and at times we, we develop tools that you would probably recognize as AI in the market or artificial intelligence um, solutions. Although we're pretty protective of that term, we think it, it belongs in research still given its infancy. Um, but uh, yeah, things in machine learning and deep learning, uh, algorithm development, uh, canonical techniques, um, new avant-garde techniques, you, you name it. And we do work in a variety of spaces from financial services to transportation to uh, even occasional fun projects like Formula One teams and cruise lines and all sorts of, of zany, zany projects. So we think of ourselves as like a modern day Bell Labs um, where we're focused on uh, bringing real authentic science into, into industry. Yeah, I saw an F1 racer on your LinkedIn profile. Um, what's the story with that, if you don't mind me asking? Um, yeah, so, uh, it's a variety of different uh, things actually culminated to that. But we, a couple of years ago, we started a, a motorsport team. Um, so we have a number of cars that are competing and with different levels of interaction, integration, interaction with Valkyrie. Um, so uh, this, you know, our first year in 2019, we had one car race in one race in one series. Um, but this year we have 14 cars in four different series. Um, we have over 30 races that um, we should be attending, although I, I don't have the, the time to do that. <laughs> but uh, I wish I did. Um, they're, they're super fun. Um, and we use them basically to exemplify you know, how science can be applied to improve uh, really complex problems. Um, we also use it as a way of generating new business. So uh, 100% of our commercial work is derived from um, the relationships we developed in racing. Um, 50, you know, we grew by 57% in the year of COVID, which is pretty wild. Um, and all that was because of, of, of uh, projects and projects that came out of racing. So great stuff. Well. So, uh, so now turning to finance specifically. What do you see as being the biggest challenge in finance or banking today that could be solved through data science and how? And also, what would you urge leaders in finance and business to rethink? Mm. Um, I'll start with the second question, actually, because yeah, I think it, it will lead into the first. Um, we're seeing this pandemic has actually been, if you think about it dispassionately, it's been like a control-alt-delete for commerce, um, for civilization, really. And what, what I think we're going to observe is radical in inefficiencies that were generated because of the pandemic. And we're gonna see those be, be basically satiated by whoever can adopt technology fastest. What do I mean by that? Um, well, let's look at healthcare, for example. Uh, two years ago, very, very few people would be comfortable using telehealth, you know, calling into a doctor, using video chat to get uh, diagnosed with an issue or be prescribed something. And the re regulatory constraints were through the roof. So that wasn't even tenable, even if you were willing to do that. Um, now, if you look at what's going on, there are a plethora of different types of uh, healthcare 
services that you can be afforded digitally. Uh, you can get, uh, you can have consults and then get prescriptions written and go pick up your prescription because of it was necessitated by COVID. Um, and so I think that the, the regulatory reaction to COVID is going to um, basically give more leniency to new types of engagement models. And on the healthcare side, um, it's, it's pretty clear and it had to be. Um, but I think on the financial services side, we're gonna see that, uh, that evolution. Um, I think we're gonna see that evolution take hold, um, probably not that transparent, transparently immediately, but over time, we're gonna see that real, real change. Again, what do I mean by that? Um, well, if you look at how models were developed using machine learning up until 2019 in finance, let's say um, underwriting models or projection of asset value, a lot of that was based off of historical data of user behaviors. So you were thinking about, we were thinking about um, how different credit cards were used in different ways in order to predict the emotion or the sentiment or the behavior of a customer. You know, Barclays Bank produced a really great uh, thought leadership piece around that a number of years ago. Um, but what happened when the pandemic hit was that behavior shifted immediately. And now all these different models that were that financial institutions were depending on to make predictions about where assets were going to go, not necessarily underwriting models per se at that point, because um, it's such a regulated space, um, but different uh, but different financial models that got totally walloped right with the with the uh, with the change in behavior. Um, and a lot of people are making the assumption that we're gonna go back to the way we were uh, when this pandemic is over. Um, and I don't think we will. And it's not because I, I think that the pandemic will be here forever, but I think that we've identified enough micro and macro uh, inefficiencies in different markets that people will shift their behavior in ways that we weren't expecting. Like maybe people only go into the office twice a week. Uh, maybe people shift, uh, maybe if it was 70% uh, digital retail and 30% physical retail before, maybe it's 90-10. Like there are all these different things that we've identified we can do totally fine during you know extreme quarantining uh, or evolved through extreme quarantining and so there's like a third phase right there's a third period of time um, that will come after the pandemic where you know those pre-pandemic pandemic and post-pandemic in terms of different phases for behavior the companies that have adopted deep learning techniques for modeling behavior um, who made that sacrifice for the avant-garde technology even though it's less explainable, less attributable, those will be the ones who actually do very, very well. And they'll eat up a lot of those inefficiencies very aggressively. The companies in the financial services space who insisted on having completely explainable models using canonical machine learning techniques, those are gonna be the ones who are at a real disadvantage um, because they don't have training data that goes back 20 years for what post COVID looks like. Um, so it's it's kind of a, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, the, the companies that embraced deep learning techniques in 2017, 2018, are you know by chance uh, created a major advantage for themselves moving forward. I think a lot of what you were talking there leads me on to my next question quite uh, nicely, which was going to be asking if you were a CEO of a bank or running a private equity fund, what AI initiatives would you be investing in right now? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly um, yeah, it's a, it is a great follow-on. I, I think you know, deep learning techniques. Um, techniques that that uh, deploy very complex neural networks to try and better understand latent patterns in data. Um, that's really the direction to make to make investments right now. Uh, that's what's going to insulate you when there are dramatic um, upheavals in different environments, including with the pandemic. Um, but it's not limited to that. Um, you know, Chinese and Taiwanese relations are escalating and 
um, in some cases, experiencing real turbulence. What's going to happen there? What's going to happen when supply chains are disrupted dramatically if there's some altercation? Um, if you look at the way resources are being deployed from you know, sub-Saharan Africa for different industrial applications, it's evolving a lot. And there's going to be markets that are flooded and markets that are barren uh, because of how uh, integrated um, sub-Saharan resources are going to become or are, are becoming. Um, Europe's role in dictating the direction of uh, code dictating the direction of all currencies along with the United States, their, their role is diminishing aggressively. And some of their powerhouses are really shifting in whether or not they're actually going to be able to, to keep a forefront uh, position uh, of leadership. Um, so there are all of these eccentricities and, and, and changes that we're going to be experiencing um, as we become even more interconnected. And the more, uh, the more these, finance, these banks, these private equity firms can embrace the power of deep learning that can scale um, some degree of cognition uh, at, at, at tremendous levels, um, the, the better off they're going to be. But, uh, but no specific examples come to mind? Sure. Um, so if you look at uh, underwriting models, for example, underwriting models are, are based off of uh, pretty, pretty uh, hard and fast rules that are usually derived from actuaries or actuarial type folks where they're, they're saying, okay, if you live between, um, you know, this if this percentage of your income is dedicated to housing or this percentage of your income is dedicated to discretionary um, through your behavior, then we are comfortable giving you a loan or not giving you a loan. Um, but it's actually much more complicated than that because uh, what we've found, we actually supported a bank in Mexico to rewrite their underwriting models. We found that there were all sorts of fascinating behavioral patterns that the machines were identifying, uh, i.e. the length of time of a commute uh, directly correlated to how, um, how likely somebody was to repay a loan. These are things that only machine learning would be able to identify. Um, and so there are, you know, in private equity, for example, you know, that's tradition, private equity and venture capital. Those are traditionally fields where people would evaluate on a case by case basis. They'd wait for deals to come in um, deal flow and, and diligence and, uh, um, Filtering out new opportunities is one of the biggest, if not the biggest uh, undertaking for a private equity or venture capital firm. But machine learning can do a lot of those sourcing, uh, that, that sourcing for them. In fact, Valkyrie has a, um, a venture capital fund to fund that we're raising for right now that does exactly that. You know, we, we identify companies that are, are, have a, a excellent prognosis and we look at the funds that are managing um, those those individual companies and we make investments into those funds based off of a, a litany of different features that we have proprietary access to regarding um, the performance of those fund managers. Um, so we're evaluating tens of thousands of different family offices and, and venture funds and PE funds in ways that we wouldn't have been able to without deploying machine learning models. I can't make 10,000 phone calls in a year, um, but I can algorithmically evaluate tens of thousands of different organizations without much of an issue. Now, we're hearing a lot about bias and ethical AI, especially around finance. What questions should finance executives be asking of their data science teams to make sure their algorithms are fair and equitable, Charlie? It's a really tough question. Um, we're asked it a lot. Uh, I think the first thing you have to level set is that there's no such thing as an unbiased algorithm or an unbiased set of data. Um, and doesn't, that, that, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Um, it's, it's bias isn't inherently an issue. It's depend, it, it really, what, what it hinges on is how you apply those biases. 
So um, for example, you might identify, here's a great, great example. We worked with a big uh, Mercedes-Benz and one of their subsidiary companies and trying to model out how uh, public transit uh, needed to evolve in the, in the city of Portland. And we were looking at how um, different people uh, use different commuter, um, commuter uh, vehicles and, uh, and different routes in order to get from one place to another. Um, and the data that we had we had been given was fed off of a mobile app that was developed. Well, early on, we had conversation with the client and the client said, oh, actually, you know, we, we developed this for iOS first. So wait before you go too far into the data um, because we're gonna have to introduce a whole other set from the Android side, right? Well, it does a lot to try and model out a city's migration patterns, their, their, their um, commute patterns, if you're only looking at iOS data, right? There's a whole bunch of biases that are automatically introduced from those data alone. Um, so you know, that's okay, that's okay, but you just have to understand where those data come from and make adjustments, say, okay, well, this only applies to people who have enough discretionary spending to be able to buy an iPhone versus uh, an Android versus a Samsung, or, or maybe it's the opposite, you know, the, everybody's using the new S21 plus or whatever, the Samsung devices, it's, you know, $2,000, of course, that's not the case, um, um, but, uh, but, but really, you know, it's acceptable to have biases in the system the onus is on the scientists to be able to mitigate any of the um, biases in either the data or the algorithms um, if you're targeting an equitable uh, outcome for, for your algorithm. If you're trying to create a space where people have opportunity without mitigating the core functionality of the business, which is really the balance that all of us are trying to strike, um, if you can do that effectively, then you're, then you're in a position where you're able to, to develop AI for good, um, for good applications. I think another ethical concern some people might have is um, data and data security. What is Valkyrie doing in particular uh, to kind of reassure people in that regard? Sure. So Valkyrie takes data security really seriously. About a quarter of all of our project work is in the government space. Um, and I don't mean the Department of Transportation, I mean defense and intelligence, pretty quite sensitive projects. Um, so we have a, a pretty robust on-premise solution for security when needed. Um, but we also, of course, hold the highest standards that, that, that are tenable um, for all the data that we, we, we use. So we really use our, our defense uh, obligations as kind of the, the, the uh, where appropriate, we use that as the, the benchmark for the rest of our project work. Now, there are some cases where you know, it's defense plus level security that we need to use, and sometimes that occurs on the financial services side. But it's a really big problem. Uh, data leaks are real. Um, there are firms who are Valkyrie sized who um, who've run into issues before by not having data completely protected. Um, where I try to advocate for is, of course, you know, encrypting and, and create and using the latest tools in encryption to be able to protect data um, for for project work or for our clients' infrastructure. Um, but you also have to think about the implications of the inferencing that you can make against those data that have privacy implications for, for consumers. Um, I always use Fitbit as an example. Um, it's a loose example. It's not real. It's not a real example at all. Um, but Fitbit, you know, tracks how many steps you take, right? And in, in and of itself, that's a pretty innocuous data set. Um, all we're doing is saying, okay, you took 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 steps in a day. But what happens when you pair those data that absolutely have latent markers in them with medical data? And you can start saying, uh, we can predict that you're going to have a heart attack in five years, or that you're going to need a, a knee replacement in two years, or that, or, or that you're overweight. Um, or can we even make predictions about your socioeconomic status 
um, because of the Fitbit data that's coming in. Those are all things that are actually pretty reasonable, you know, half degree ahead of where we are now, or even a, maybe a full degree ahead of where we are now. And in fact, Fitbit's doing some of those things. Um, how do you regulate the data in and of itself that, that contains latent patterns, but then it's not being exploited for those latent patterns? It's a really big conundrum, right? Because either you say, well, it's the Fitbit data itself is just looking at steps that doesn't need to be medically compliant. You don't need to think about medical sensitivity there. Or you say, well, it has the potential to tell us A, B, C, D, E, and F. These are all super sensitive things. So we could you know, ultra restrict them. Well, that has ramifications. Um, GDPR has had major ramifications on entrepreneurship and innovation in Europe. And if, if the US was to adopt a similar approaches, it would, it would disincentivize uh, Fitbit from creating really interesting tools and powerful tools. And some people won't want to know that they're going to have a knee replacement in three years. That's valuable information for a lot of people. So how do you balance innovation and then the ethical requirements of those companies to be able to protect and insulate um, those data from, from ulterior motivation? It's, it's a tough problem. Um, there's not a real solution. We do a lot of advocacy at the federal government level with um, Congress people to try and identify the right way to strike that balance um, without inhibiting the innovation engine of, of America and then also protecting um, the rights of, of customers. So it's a big problem, but it's, it's a fascinating one. It really is. And I guess when one considers what the finance industry might look like in 20 years time, it's kind of hard to even guess because we don't even know what it's going to be like tomorrow. From your own perspective, Charlie, what future disruptions do you see happening? Uh, specifically in the finance uh, sector, I think that the I think we're moving so aggressively to digital adoption and digital only channels that um, financial institutions are going to have to rethink the way they're engaging with newer generation, younger generations. Um, that's pretty trite. I think everybody has has talked about that pretty extensively. So that I'm not you know, I'm not I'm not setting any headlines on fire with with that. But um, but it does you know. But with the migration over to digital, one thing that financial services needs to be cognizant of is the change in our understanding of the human behavior and condition um, and, the, and, and the data that's afforded to us because we're now moving into a digital only type of environment. What do I mean by that? Well, for thousands of years, but certainly operationally the last 150 years, if you were trying to create a product that would work for me, you would target, um, you'd look at what uh, products have been purchased by, you know, white males, father of two living in Austin, Texas, right? Some of the more traditional marketing ways of cutting and slicing and dicing people. But that's the, the secret in the marketing and the persona matching world is that that actually doesn't work very well. Um, it, it works really poorly. You might find that I have much more in common with a, um, a baby boomer, um, uh, a black baby boomer from um, Cincinnati than I do with somebody who matches my, you know, the profile that I just described. Um, and, and actually we're seeing that that's very much the case. So all of these semantic ways that we slice and dice and cut people from marketing perspective and, and really trying to craft visions and messages, it doesn't actually work that well in a lot of cases. So uh, financial institutions that are, that are comfortable embracing people based off of their behavior what they do instead of these immutable characteristics that are actually not good indicators of what products are going to consume, that's actually going to be the most important play for them. Um, now, but in a previous life, I, I helped um, a bank really come to a very similar conclusion. Uh, and um, I think that the adoption of that across financial services will become more and more clear. 
And I think that that will have regulatory implications too. You know, they'll be pushing that there will be pushes, uh, aggressive pushes for um, the types of investors that are allowed to participate in different ventures to evolve. Um, right now, the fact you have well-qualified investors who can only participate in some classes, it's actually a pretty antiquated solution um, to, to, a, to the problem of investment. So I think we'll, we could potentially see shifts in there. Um, it's a, yeah, it, it all really though hinges around a much more intimate and much more informed relationship we have between the financial services industry, their, their customers and the behavior exhibited by those customers. Uh, for some companies uh, which are now just starting to adopt AI, some employees could feel a little bit concerned, like maybe they think that uh, the human elements to companies will kind of, uh, it will, they'll lose something essentially. Uh, what would you say to that? How would you reassure them that AI is in fact going to augment human ability, not supplant it? So uh, there are a lot of real concerns right now about how people are going to um, work in conjunction with AI in the next 20, 30 years, definitely. Um, but I think people are worried about the wrong roles. I think people are very concerned right now about um, truck drivers who might uh, have automated self-driving cars replace them um, or um, people who are currently you know, responsible for uh, tasks that computer vision could take on um, and could identify. You know, those, are, so those are the commonly brought up fields. Where I'm more concerned actually is, about, is around the semi-skilled labor, kind of the light blue collar jobs, um, paralegals, uh, hospital administrators, uh, folks who are um, supportive, you know, supporting operations in different organizations at, at, uh, at different levels. I worry about those folks because what we're seeing is that AI is not replacing cognition, not even close to. In fact, Valkyrie's mission is to stop us from regressing towards that, that problem. I think that science is actually losing momentum uh, to try and solve that particular issue. Um, but where AI is doing a very effective job is it's, it's automating tedious tasks. So what I always say is, uh, you know, if you look 20 years down the road, 30 years down the road, AI it is anything that you're doing today where you can have a complex, interesting intellectual conversation with another person, anything that you can also do while doing that will probably be automated by artificial intelligence or has the potential to be automated by artificial intelligence. So tedious tasks, right? Bad examples include, you know, um, brushing your teeth or, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, filling out um, forms, box, you know, forms for a, for a different company or, or um, things that are just not complex behaviors at all. Uh, I think those things will be automated. I'm much less worried about the actual interesting intellectual work that we're doing. So um, when you look at the, you know, who's doing a lot of this tedious work, uh, a lot of those, those people are um, in fields like you know, the paralegal space or in hospital administration. Um, and it's not that we're not gonna lead, need paralegals anymore, but I think we'll, be, we'll diminish the need for paralegals. I think we'll diminish the need in financial services. I think the need for legions of financial analysts for investment firms is going to go right down the tube. I mean, there, there's no question, you know, you, you, you interact right now with a private equity firm and they've got you know, a legion of brand new Cornell grads um, who are performing diligence against these potential investments, um, I could easily see that reduced by 90% with the power of machine learning to be able to, to democratize the, and, and evaluate um, the, uh, the behavior of these companies and, and make projections about what this will be. And as one final question, what's one myth about AI that people commonly have that you'd like to dispel? I think the, 
I think the, the biggest myth with AI is that we understand the I. <laughs> so um, if you were to pay attention to the last 20 years of the pure tech on AI, you'd say, oh my gosh, we're making such great progress. But what I'm challenged by is that I still don't see consensus in terms of a, a real definition and an actionable definition of intelligence. Um, and I think that's because we haven't spent enough time yet really trying to reverse engineer the brilliantly complex and wonderful mystery that is the human brain. It's the last great adventure scientifically, truly. I mean, we know way more about deep space and the origins of the universe and uh, what happens at the bottom of the ocean than we do about you know, neural relationships in our own brain. And so Valkyrie's charter is even though we won't, we won't make a dime from it, um, we are spinning up our efforts to just focus on cognition, to understand cognition better. What I hope that the general public can appreciate is that AI is going to fundamentally transform the world. Um, it's going to tra tra fundamentally transform how much tedium you're exposed to. You can focus on intellectually stimulating things, but until we understand the things, why things are intellectually stimulating or what happens when um, something, somebody acts creatively, um, there is no jeopardy for what makes us the most sentient uh, and unique creature on the planet, uh, which, is, which is our cognition. Um, so I'm very hopeful. I'm very, I'm very excited about where we're going. Um, I don't think AI is the next big thing. I think AI truly is the last big thing um, because once we are able to actually unlock the power of, of cognition, uh, we're going to see a, a radically different radically different prioritization of activities. I don't think we'll see it in my lifetime, um, but I, I very much intend on Valkyrie contributing to, to that exploration and understanding. Charlie Burgoyne, Valkyrie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, appreciate your time.